super hypothetical. You are in jail and you need to get bailed out. Who are you going to call? <laughs> Shell Thewitt or Mert Lawwell? Oh, I guess Mert. I'm not sure Shell would come and get me. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 38, Tank Slapping Podcast. We're back at it. Different co-host from last week, but our normal guy, Sneaky <laughs> hey, Sam, sneaked his yeah, way back on. What's I'm good, back. Man? I'm back, man. You know, uh, I was I was out. Uh, I, I feel lame saying this, but I had a toothache, man. Those things suck. Like, when you have one for real, they, they, they really suck. I'll tell you. In my defense, though, um, I was trying to be a trooper, you know, uh, right before the end of the season when we had that like eight race run, um, I had a filling fall out and then my tooth cracked and there was no time to get it done. So I'm like, man, I just got to make it through this Love last on it. the Me last did. grind of the season. And then sure enough, man, I was uh, all said and done. I was I was on my couch crying like a baby. Had the to get sacrifices you make for Ryan Varnes, man. Does he? I hope he appreciates. I, I don't even know if he truly appreciates it. I oh, tell him, you man. know, tell him thanks. Don't go to banks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we're back at it, and we have two guests tonight. But we'll talk about the one first. And the first guest we have on the show is Chris Killen from Bell Helmets. Super excited to talk to Chris. He's been a, a, with Bell Helmets for a few years now. Before that, well, we'll let him talk about his his background a little bit in the in the sport and things like that. But bringing him on, super excited to talk about uh, his involvement with Bell Helmets and their involvement with the sport. I want to also thank Jerry Stinchfield of Roof Systems of Dallas, Texas, commercial industrial roofing company with nearly 40 years of experience. Jerry keeps this sport going, and you know, without his help, I don't think we'd have a series. So definitely appreciate Jerry. Check them out and give them some support. Hit them up on social media and, and thank them for supporting not only our podcast, but uh, but Flat Track in general. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited, man. It's going to be a good show tonight. We got uh, a stacked lineup, and I'd stick around for our for our second guest. We got we got a good one there as well. Yeah, you know, I mean, not taking anything away from Chris or, uh, you know, Bell Helmets and, and, and you know, who they are and, and what an iconic staple they are, uh, you know, in our in our sport, in the, in the industry. But, man, I, I would... Uh, I'd hate to have to go on after our second guest. He'd be a hard guy to follow. Well, that's why we're bringing him on first. <laughs> It'd be like all-time low performing for Blink-182. That was kind of like the when I was at the X Games. It was sort of that, you know, just like a opening act, you know. But it's not a bad opening act either. Chris is a pretty funny guy. So, yeah, let's stick around. We got a big show, and, yeah, let's get it going. Carter, give Chris a call from Bell Helmets. Gladly. Yellow. Big dog. Corey Texter, Sammy Sabedra here, Tanks Latin Podcast. How you doing, Chris? Uh, I didn't hear Chris Carter's name mentioned. That's what I'm talking about, dude. He's the producer, man. He's here. He's here, What's up, I just wanted to make sure, dude. Uh, I I don't get to see his phone call me that often, and when I see his name pass across my phone lines, I'm like, dude. Oh, that's right. Who the hell's got his phone? I dial from my phone. Happy Monday. Yeah, happy Monday, man. Stoked to get you on the show. You're a busy guy, so I I wanted to get you on and 
The fans want to know who Chris Killen is, the man behind all the Bell Helmet stuff. Let's get into it. What uh, What's staying a life like for you, and how did you get involved in working for Bell Helmets? Well, first of all, I doubt any of your fans know who I am, but I do appreciate that, and it makes <laughs> me feel a lot better. I feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Um, incredibly long story short, because I just uh, I'm 41 years old now. Um, at, at a certain point in my life, I realized that uh, the military and um, trades and commercial fishing wasn't for me. Um, not because I couldn't handle it, but because those you know those those industries and such uh, government bodies were changing in a way that I didn't really like. And so I went to college for marketing and television. Uh, Chris Carter actually probably knows about this stuff, but um, I worked on the Dr. Phil show and live TV while I was in college. Um, didn't like Dr. Phil. He's a, he's a dick. Wait, are we allowed to, can you use bad words or bleep that out? <laughs> Come on, bro. We uh, curse we'll, on we'll, you. We'll, we'll bleep no, out I'm the doctor. Phil. With you. I'm just, you guys are like a bunch of sailors, dude. No, that guy sucks, man. He's a, he's a, he's a jerk. You weren't able to like look him in the eyes on the set or on the studio lot there at Paramount. Um, he was, he was just a, he was a royal uh, asshole. And, um, I, I mean, that actually, that could take up a, like a couple hours just talking about him alone. But, um, and then, so, you know, I graduated, I graduated school. Um, I went to school in LA at a, at a state school called Cal State Los Angeles and moved up to Santa Cruz, which has, uh, a company called Bell Helmets that's uh, right there. And actually didn't start with Bell. I started with, um, doing some stuff for DMG, um, helping them to develop, uh, this platform that they called Fans Choice, and I started like technical directing shows for a couple IMSA broadcasts, and then flat track broadcasts, and then Bell Helmets uh, was kind of hearing and listening and watching my career because I was from in their hometown, and yeah, they hit me up and they became one of my clients. And then after a while, um, Obamacare came and quadrupled my insurance, and so I was like, dude, uh, I need somebody to pay my insurance for me because two grand a month as a contractor is like way too much. So yeah, dude, I, I reached out to Bell and I reached out to, um, AFT at the time. I think it was still AMA pro flat track. And, um, yeah, they both actually made me offers. I was really close to actually taking the, the AFT offer, but due to some family stuff, I, I wanted to stay out here and be close to family. So that's how it started. And when I said that there's so, an incredibly long story, dude, there's a really long story behind all that. <laughs> so sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. We might have to read about that in your book one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So quick question. Uh, hey, you know, this is this is just an off the wall question. Uh, what size helmet would Dr. Phil wear if you had to fit him for a helmet? He'd be well, they don't make douchebag size helmets, so I don't know. <laughs> That's crazy, man. But I'm actually just by the just by the circumference of his head, I'd say he's probably he's probably an extra large man. He's got a large noggin. That's crazy. I've actually heard the same about Ellen. Honestly, like you can't oh, dude, look, she's you can't awesome. look Ellen in the eye or something. Like that's yep. crazy. No, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Uh, Oprah is actually nicer. When uh, when I was actually on Dr. Phil's show, Oprah was she was cutting ties with Dr. Phil because that's actually how he got his start. Was he came under her tutelage. He, she let, leased him her one of her studios, and because he was such a dickhead, she was like, dude, you can't be associated with my studio. You have to buy the show and the studio from me, and we're no longer, we're no longer uh, hanging out. Uh, that's crazy, man. That's a good thing about yeah. motorcycle racers. They're typically 
they're if they're assholes, you 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 know they're assholes. You know, it's not real. There's no exactly. secrets. There, yeah, you know what I mean. So, dude, there's there's something to be said for motorcycling in general, but especially for racers, it's true blue, dude. Like you're not. There's not a whole lot of like deceit behind the back stuff. It's like it's either handled on the track or handled uh, after the race. Man, I I really when I saw that whole Kenny Colbeth Jr. give a little knuckle sandwich to Johnny Lewis, I just said, boy, oh boy, am I a happy little guy right now. You know, like that, that was, that was so, that was so legendary, dude. And I, you can't do that anywhere else. I mean, NFL, they do it, but they, they, they leave their helmets on for it. Motorcycle races, they take theirs off. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's entertaining, man. The fans love it. There's a lot of personality in, yeah. in our sport. So it's, it's uh yeah it's a it's a good thing but no talking about go back to bell a little bit you know obviously we're big bell fans on our show and i wear bell helmets and i'm stoked on that but who are some of the other guys for the for the fans that are listening who who's kind of your bell squad right now in in flat track so we keep it pretty tight we we run a we run a pretty tight uh lean team and that's just by way of the nature of the beast um but we're, you know, you got guys like Dalton Gauthier, uh, Jared Meese, Bad Chad Coast. You guys already talked about, you know, the one and only C-Tex, Corey Texter. You know, crazy enough, we got we got Kenny Coolbeth for his last year as a pro, which was really, really cool to be able to take him out, you know, right off into the sunset on his shoulders. That was an incredibly, incredibly special um, kind of deal for us to put together. I'm not sure if you guys saw that helmet we had painted up from Tagger, but... Um, one side was his old national number 31, and then he, and then we put the one on the other side. A crown, there was a crown on it. It was a sick helmet. That, that was pretty cool. Yeah, that, that was, was cool. right. That was a pretty. Yeah. yeah, and like, um, I wish more brands like. See, that's the thing though. Is like, Bell, we're pretty. You know, we're we're you know pretty small and lean team, and um, you know, so we're able to be really fluid and kind of move pretty quickly. And you know, when somebody like. Kenny Colbeth Jr. comes onto the market, you're like, shit, dude, we got to pivot. We got to get this. And then we can also just quickly reach out to our partners and our artists and say, hey, dude, we have this idea. He's This is his last year. And then Tiger being Tiger, he just comes up with some some really awesome stuff. Um, of course, we have, sorry, back to the uh, athletes. We've got the brothers Bauman over there on the factory Indian team. Um, you know, there's guys like Morgan Missler, Jesse Janis. Uh, we got Henry Wiles, who's probably going into his like 23rd or 24th year as a Bell athlete. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know, like looking at that, you know, that list, like Bell. The other thing is, is that it's not like we're saying anybody else is a bad person or anything like that. But we we really look and strive to like find find people that fit kind of that Bell that Bell mold. You know, can wear a smile, but they're honest. They're not going to wear a smile when they're when they're not feeling happy and working hard, regardless of if it's on track, off track, personal business. And then there, there's a couple other like, uh, you know, we're we're able to be really quick, really fluid, like I said, and like you know, like guys like Michael Linderbitson and Brandon Kitchen, that like you know, they're entering a place where they need someone, and we're able to be like, all right, yeah, we'll hook you up with some helmets, and you know, try to put something together for you. Um, I'm not. I can't remember all of them right now, but there's we have a we have a pretty good, pretty stacked um, field and um, a lot of personality, a, man. A lot of different personalities. Well, that's 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 like the big thing too. Is like is is personality and like having that like you know somebody that someone can look at and, and um, love them or hate them. They're like, dude, yeah, that dude's a legend or that 
you know, I guess we don't have any female dirt trackers um, as of yet, but uh, yeah, like they could say, oh, that dude, man, I mean, at the end of the day, you can't really say much bad about those folks, right? Like, uh, but anyways, yeah, so we're, we're, um, we're excited, you know, we're really, really stoked to be involved, with, especially like this, this podcast is such a cool thing. And like I get, you know, we're owned by this company called Vista Outdoor now, Bell is. And when I get like people from the board at Vista who, because of somebody that they know or some friend, and they're like, what are you guys doing with this pink slipping podcast? And, and I'm like, it's, well, thanks slapping. And they're like, that is so cool and blah, blah. Like, it just goes to show you, like, your guys' reach is already pretty pretty damn big, dude. Like, you're reaching people that aren't necessarily really even motorcyclists. But they're, I don't know what you guys are doing, putting in the secret sauce over there, but it's really good. And so <laughs> we're stoked about that. AFP is incredible. Um, we're really, really excited to be, you know, sponsoring athletes at that level and, you know, helping to support like Corey, your amateur program, which is a, which is really, really important for us. All those young riders meeting, you know, with little kids like Cage Tapman, like and meeting his parents and letting them know that like brands like Bell are there. We're looking out for those kids and shake their hand, look them in the eye and, you know, like instill some confidence, not only in the product, but the people um, behind the scenes at Bell. Well, you know, with the encouraging words like uh, you just spoke, me and Corey might need uh, up our helmet size next year. But uh, uh, just all just yeah, <laughs> make sure to make if you're um, if you're in need, you just got to reach out. Just uh, don't tell any of your listeners. My phone number is eight three one. <laughs> yeah, you know, hey, I, I got to say, I'm an old school guy just by nature, by heart. So if I was in the Bell office, I'd be looking around, man, at the old school pictures or digging through the files and, yep. you know, just yep. seeing all the old, you know, I mean, we I mean, have, what yep. a staple in, in motorsports that that name is, you know, on yeah. its own. But going through the list of people that have strapped on a Bell helmet. Oh, yeah. Who's yeah. the most iconic person in your eyes? That's a tough one. I'm putting you on loaded, the spot. I feel like this is a loaded question, though, too, because I know that you guys may have a guest. He's actually got a corner at a at a turn here at the local racetrack called Laguna Seca. Uh, but I, I would yeah. say that I would say, yeah. well, dude, there's so many, man. Uh, I give you. There's so I, many. I mean, well, honestly, you, to me, for me, more Bell. I can give you one. When I think of Bell, hit me, hit me. it's it's hit not me. flat track. It's not road racing. It's Supercross. It's McGrath, man. He, he, the amount of replica McGirt. Bell helmets he's yep. had, it's yep. like McGrath has got to be on the Mount Rushmore well, Bell. He, well, he, let, let me tell you something. He is. He he, 100% for sure is. But uh, so is Jimmy Stu. I mean, he what, what a legend he was and what, what amazing stuff he did in that same paddock. Like, um, but then on the flat track side and the road race side, it's all like there's so many. I was going to tell you about coming to the office, but being in our office. So first of all, we have this really cool um, getting away from the heritage vintage stuff we got in there. But we got like a really cool test facility, something that nobody else has. Like we're the only one. Like you could come in there and watch us test how much you could look at the data. We buy our competitors helmets, see where they're bad, see where they're worse, see where they're in the shitter. Just kidding. <laughs> but we <laughs> test all their helmets. But really? And, really, yeah. and and we learn and we learn, we see like oh man like okay all right where are they what are they doing right what are they doing wrong and of course you know we use it to develop our proprietary like 
top-of-the-line protection systems like Flex, which is in the, the top-of-the-line moto helmets and then in the top-of-the-line full-face helmets. But speaking of riders, Hurricane Bob Hanna's original Moto3 that had hand-dremeled vents, like hand-painted with like a Sharpie almost, is sitting in that office, the Moto3, when they were first testing that, testing that helmet out. Is in the That's pretty badass. That's pretty bad. But yeah, so like if, if you guys ever find yourself out west, hopefully when this COVID, I, I was thinking that, you know, hopefully the COVID thing kind of kind of wants to take a little back step here now that now that some election stuff is behind us. No, no, no response on that one. <laughs> Dude, I just gave Carter the. the I just gave him the, the horns, man. <laughs> you know, I, I steer a hundred percent clear of that right now. I just, I just, yeah, let, I would let that one fly right on by, man, right over well, my that's head. Good because no problem. That's, that's, what, that's why I want. That's that's why you guys are getting paid the big bucks, dude. You got to make those tough decisions rather to censor that. But um, like, if you if there's a race, you know, um, out in California again in the near future or whenever it is, like. Fuck, dude, you guys got to come to the office, especially if you're racing like Sack Mile. Like, that's an hour and 45 minutes maybe from us. So spend a little extra time out here. Maybe even do like a podcast episode from Bell HQ, dude. You could do like a video one where you're showing them us testing homeless and stuff. Done. I, Carter's already going nuts over that right now. He's like, done. We're doing it. Good. Good. I, I mean, the, the invite is open. It's, it's, it's all that, that door is open. So I love Santa um, Cruz anyway. Santa Cruz is awesome. So. Well, that's the thing, dude. We can go. Andrew's is a with, really cool um, town. And Corey, I'm sorry if you if you have a bike deal, um, but you know, Specialize is here. Santa Cruz is here. We can go grab some bikes. We can go for a ride. Like some of the best mountain biking in the world is right here. Beautiful roads for like touring. Some good tracks like for road race and stuff. Like we can we can get out and we can go go have some fun. Like make a make a week of it or something. You know, like, bring bring the wife and kid out vacation. Santa Cruz, dude. Hopefully, we go to SAC next year. I'm kind of waiting on the schedule oh, still, it. but I hope we'll, so, dude. Yeah, yeah. So we'll yeah, hopefully know too. more more of that soon. But um, now, nah, uh, dude, I just wanted to get you on and chat, Bell, a little Thank bit. Thank you so What's, much, dude. Thank you. What? What? Uh, I have a load. I don't even know if you can answer this, but if there's one, <laughs> I, I literally don't know. I'm gonna ask it. Uh, if you could pick no, dude, one, yeah. Okay. If you could pick an athlete that's not wearing Bell. And put them in bell helmets. Do you have a, like a um, like a wish list for <laughs> certain riders? How does that work? Like any free agents you go um, after? You know, I don't want to. I don't want to. Man, so so it would be it would be category. You know, it'd be specific to each category. I wouldn't be able to do it. Like so, on the flat track side, I, you may have heard of her, uh, Shana Texter. I was just saying, man. I I got you said that you don't have a female athlete. I got a I got a contact dude, for that. I got a contact. Dude, he, he like can that, get your that info. He can get your info. Honestly, yeah. And and that's not. I'm not even saying that in jest. Actually, like yourself, you and I have had a conversation probably six or seven years ago. I think at Calistoga about you potentially coming over to Bell, and then. Um, but yeah, your sister's been somebody that's been on the radar for a long time. But that's one thing about flat trackers is that they are some of the most loyal athletes that I've ever come into contact with like there's something to be said for the flat track paddock i respect that it is the greatest experience like even just being in that paddock for a moment you know like just seeing seeing the camaraderie in the family like i love like that's why i love california around so much too because i could bring my son and my wife and man it's like the first time i ever brought him to a race nobody had any idea who they were and scotty dubler's talking about us on the 
about my wife and kid on the camera. Like one of the camera guys got us sitting there and it was so cool, dude. It's such, it's an amazing, amazing experience. And I'm just really excited that we get to be involved with the sport that seems like, you know, there's, there's no, there's no ceiling really, you know, that can go as big as it wants. And this progressive thing is huge. Like it's awesome. We appreciate you coming on, man. I know you're technically punched in right now, so we appreciate you taking time to uh, chat with yeah, us. Yeah, no worries. Um, well, I'll get oh, you to do this. Hopefully, your Monday a little bit better. <laughs> Dude, I'm I'm a huge proponent of Happy Mondays, and this made mine happier, so thank you. <laughs> yeah. Nice, nice. All right, Chris. Hey, well, keep fighting the good fight, you guys. This is really, really cool. And, and honestly, yeah, keep up the good work on all fronts, but especially with this. Thank you, and yeah, let's try to, let's do it again. And then as the schedule comes out, let's talk sack and talk about you guys coming by the office. Yeah, man, for sure. And uh, thanks for not only what you do for the podcast, but uh, pro amateur racing, um, you know, safety, oh, everything yeah, like that, dude. Much love. We appreciate 100%. it. 100%. We, lo- we, we love you guys and gals, and, and um, we'll continue to do so. Cool, man. Damn. We'll chat soon. All right. Thanks cool. again. We'll talking okay. to you. Thanks, Chris. Later, hey, buddy. let's talk COVID next time. You. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool guy, man. Cool guy. That was a good call. I enjoyed uh, that yeah. a lot. Dude, dude's awesome, man. And since I've since I've switched to Bell, it's been incredible. I mean, it's they treat you like family, man. It, it, it's nice to feel appreciated. Um, it's just, yeah, a really cool thing. And the stuff they do, there's not a lot of helmet brands out there that are supporting amateur racing at the level that Bell is. And, you know, with pro riders, we need to be protected and safe, but so do our, our amateur riders. And, and this, the amount of stuff that Bell helps me with for my amateur team, no questions asked, you know, getting kids in the proper helmets. And one thing that people don't know about, it's the, the safety ratings on these helmets. You can look up safety ratings for, you know, all these different brands of helmets. And Bell is top of the line in safety ratings. So, you look up, you know, if if you care about the safety ratings, um, you know, not only the bells are just badass looking helmets, but the safety ratings, look them up. I mean, I don't have to sell you on them because you can look them up and they do a really, a really good job with that, Sammy. Yeah, you know, I, I got to say, you know, uh, just my own little two cents here. Uh, the Bell kind of bookend my racing career. I started in a Bell helmet when I was a little kid on, on a peewee. And then uh, I ended my career on four wheels uh, driving a sprint cars with a Bell helmet. So they were uh, the bookend helmets for, for my racing. Yeah, uh, it's, always, it's, you know. my dad always wore Bells. And I have a couple, I have a bunch of his Bell helmets on display in my house next to, next to my Bell helmet. So, yeah, it's... It's a cool thing, and we're happy they're involved with our show. But, yeah, he uh, he mentioned on um, during his interview there's a corner at Laguna Seca named after a rider. And, shit, yeah. we're going to have Wayne Rainey on our show, man. So, yeah, I, I – oh, man, I, I kind of forget the name of the corner, though. What is the name yeah. of that corner? Huh, huh. I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with Rainy. I don't know. What do you think? Corner curve? No, it is. I, I actually honestly forget what the heck that corner. Oh, is it Rainy Curve? I know it's right after the corner. Rainy Curve, man. Yeah. Rainy Curve. Rainy yeah, yeah. Curve. Which is, sure. uh, which is a badass corner to watch on multiple levels. Uh, if you guys have never been to, you know, Laguna Seca, kind of sits on a hillside. And, of course, everybody knows the legendary corkscrew, which is like a two-story drop. Uh, with a with a chicane, uh, so it's a two-story chicane drop, and then as soon as you come out of that, it's a it's Randy Curve. It's uh you know I believe it. Don't quote me on this. Maybe it's a uh, turn nine. Uh, it's a uh, 
it's a really long left-hander, which I think is cool because Wayne's a dirt tracker. That's where he, you know, got his start. So it's a left-hand corner, and it's a really banked downhill left-hand corner. And if you watch it from the inside, like from the corkscrew, like if you're on the inside of the track, uh, as the riders come through rainy curve, it's almost like a bird's eye view because when they're when they're leaned over on the bank, you can see like the top of their gas tank and the top of their helmet, and it's a really cool view to watch. And uh, it's really neat because they're, you know, they're on the gas going downhill, fully leaned over. It's really cool. And if you're on the outside of the track where a lot of people can't, you kind of see the last part of the of the corkscrew and you see them, you know, flick it from a hard right to the hard left. And uh, it, it's just it, it's a it's a beautiful spot to watch some motorcycles go around a racetrack. Rainy curve. Yeah, I've, I've actually never been to Laguna, man. I, I've. I've driven by it on our way to Monterey from Briar's house in Salinas, but I've never actually been to Laguna Seca. So definitely one of the tracks I'd like to, I'd like to check out for sure. I, I played it on the video game quite a bit, but I've never got to um, check it out, but hell next year, bagger class, baby. I'm coming yeah. to Laguna. So You'll be there. <laughs> uh, somebody build me a bagger. Like, just, it's got to happen. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, we're going to talk with three time world champion, Wayne Rainey, flat tracker. I'm super excited to chat with him. And man, I, he's iconic. So, it, it's going to be awesome. Hello, Wayne. Hey, Wayne. Corey Texter, Sammy Sabedra calling with Tank Slapping Podcast. How are you? Hey, boys. How's it going? <laughs> We're doing well. We're doing well. Thanks for coming yeah. on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a it's a big honor to you know to talk to uh, uh, you know someone of your caliber. You know, if, you know, I mean, oh, a three time world champion. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, this is our first time, Corey, talking to a world champion. Is that is that correct? <laughs> yeah, actually, it is. Well, pretty big deal. <laughs> Yeah, real excited. No, um, hey, don't overwhelm yourself. There's no different than talking to uh, Scott Parker, okay? <laughs> oh, it's a lot different. If, if you heard Mr. If, you heard our, if you heard our Parker interview, you'll you'll uh, realize that it, it was quite a bit different. But uh, we'll, we'll get into that, actually. I have a few Parker questions for you on the show tonight. But I uh, wanted to kind of just get into kind of your amateur career a little bit. And how Wayne Rainey got started in this whole racing thing. I don't know if if that's talked about a lot in your interviews. You know, they they talk about Wayne Rainey, the world champion, but I want to know about Wayne Rainey and how he got his start into this motorcycle racing thing. Well, um, let's see. It goes back to 1960s. Uh, I'm from Southern California, and uh, my dad raced go karts, and then uh, the motorcycle craze kind of hit. He ended up buying a Yamaha 80, and he modified that. And then uh, he just started racing flat track. I guess he was probably uh, 21 or so. And then um, back in those days in Southern California, there was an explosion of flat track racing. So there was Ascot Park, Prado Park, or Prado Dam, I think they called it. Uh, they had Elston Raceway, Paris. I think Paris was similar to where it is now. But um, my dad ended up breaking his leg racing uh uh, a TT at Ascot, so my mom said, hey, that's it for the race. And so my dad was a carpenter by trade, but uh, he loved motorcycles, so he built a, uh, a TD-1C, I think is what it was. It was a, a sonic weld 
that was back in the days when there was no uh, no rear suspension and no brakes. And he had a it was a a, a, a twin cylinder Yamaha, and he had guys ride that at uh, at Ascot Park in the novice class. And so as a kid, I would go to I would uh, Ascot Park was about. No, 20 miles from the home. I lived in Downey at this time called Downey in Southern Cal. And uh, so I would go to Ascot Park every Friday night. And I was up in the grandstands and I was running around up there uh, from corner to corner watching the, watching the, the flat track racing. And, and uh, I was out there every Friday night for, you know, seven or eight years. And then finally when I turned, uh, turned nine, um, my dad bought me a Z50. And uh, a buddy said, "Hey, you want to come check out Saddleback Park to, to come race?" And and uh, so I think I was age nine when I got my first race. And uh, uh, I, yeah, I ended up. I remember I got fourth place, got a trophy, and I wet my pants all at the same time. So uh, yeah, it was pretty exciting <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know if I want to let you elaborate on that or, or if that's where we should just end that one, but that's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you know, Wayne, uh, yeah, I know a lot of people know you from different points in your career. Um, obviously, you know, your start was in dirt track and, and you grew up around, uh, you know, a lot of fast guys from Southern California. The list of names goes on and on and on from even from your, you know, your you know, your younger years as a kid, but, you know, you talked about your dad going to Ascot with that, you know, that Sonic Weld Yamaha, and we all know what that place was, you know, the, the, the legendary Ascot and, and you know, the, the, just the, the stories and the aura that comes with that place. But you were a kid that was there on a Friday night watching it and, uh, arguably what was its heyday. Uh, and then as a, you know, as a, as a novice, uh, a junior, and a rookie expert and even a national number, you got to ride Ascot. And, you know, so what was that like watching, you know, as a kid and watching, you know, the fast guys when you're a little kid at Ascot? And then what was it like for you to actually go to Ascot and ride it? I mean, how significant was that for you? And what was that experience like? Well, I think the first time I, I went to Ascot, they had a, what they called a, a semi-pro night. And it was like the first time that they had let kids like under 16 go out there and race. So I was driving a 125. We had a 125 Honda Elsinore uh, in, a, in a flat track chassis. And for the first three weeks, they called it the pilot program. And uh, it got rained out. And I was never able to go actually ride Ascot as a kid. So my first time that I actually rode Ascot was as a novice when I was 16. And um, and I proceeded to kick everybody's ass, that's for sure. Man, I dug that place. It, it was, uh, I think there was like 100 novices trying to qualify. And if you won the race, if you won your heat race, you didn't necessarily make the main event. You had to be, you had to be like one of the fastest heat race winners. And uh, I went undefeated there as a novice, and oh, and I, I'm not sure if I was undefeated as a junior or not, but I remember as a novice that I was. And uh, but that was the first year that they went from 360 cc singles and 250 twins down to the 250 singles. And uh, so, you know, my dad, I wrote a show, Yamaha. That was my first sponsor, and uh, my dad built all my stuff and. 
my shit was quick, but a lot of times we didn't get to the checkered flag. As a kid growing up, we didn't see a lot of checkered flags, but uh, uh, I learned a lot during those times. But at Ascot, with uh, with that, that YZ Yamaha 250, that thing pinged so bad. I mean, I, we always thought it was going to cease before it got to the to the finish line, but um, it, it was only an eight-lap race, so we always found uh, the checkered flag, that was for sure. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, I... Um... Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of your road racing career, and I really enjoy hearing these flat track stories. That's that's pretty awesome. But at what point, you know, you went over to Grand Prix racing. I think I want to say it was 1984 is when you went over and rode the 250 class. You rode a little bit of novice, like amateur novice racing here in the States before you went over. But how was that transition? Like you did a lot of successful things in pro flat track. But when did you know you were going to be a pavement racer and go over and race the world championship? Yeah, well, that was, let's see. So, you know, I, I was going to be a flat tracker. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be the grand national champion. I wanted to race with all my heroes or, and they were all flat track guys. So that's what I was focused on. And so, but I, but my sponsor was shell racing and they were, uh, mostly Yamahas. So you could still ride a Yamaha as a junior and be competitive, but in the expert class, uh, when I was a rookie, I was the only Yamaha at most of these uh, half miles and miles as a rookie expert. So that year, uh, my rookie year wasn't so successful. Then the next year, we ended up uh, uh, switching to Harley. And, uh, but I, I had also, Kawasaki had just started, uh, they wanted to sell uh, KX250 short track engines or four short trackers. So they put a bike together and then um, Eddie Lawson was supposed to ride it and he injured himself. So they asked him if they knew anybody that could ride the, the short track bike. And so he mentioned me because Eddie and I, you know, uh, he was, me and him grew up together, raced each other in Southern California. So we had a relationship like that. And uh, so Kawasaki gave me the short track. It was the Viper Frame Short Tracker. And we ended up winning uh, a couple races with it as an expert. Um, and then Kawasaki asked me if I wanted to try some road racing. And, I, and at that point of my career, I was a second-year expert now. I had never even thought about road racing, never even knew what it was like, and didn't care about it. But then when they asked me, to go try this California Superbike School at Keith Codes. I ended up going out to the old Riverside Raceway, and I ended up riding fast enough that Keith Code told Kawasaki and said, "Hey, maybe this this flat track kid might have some talent." So uh, I ended up doing a couple uh, club races, and and I won most of those. And then they asked me to come to um, Loudon, New Hampshire, back in 19, I think it was 1981. So they said, uh, if I could get back there, I'd have a ride. And uh, so me and a buddy jumped in my van, and we hauled ass back to uh, Concord, New Hampshire from California when the speed limit was 55. And um, I proceeded to uh, uh, ride the 250 novice race, and it was it happened to be in the rain, which was the first time I had ever ridden in the rain and ridden this bike at, at that track. And I ended up... Uh, went in the race by 20 seconds and the next day Kawasaki came to me and had and basically offered me a, a contract to go superbike racing. So 
you know, I drove back there, paid for the gas, and flew coming home. So it was uh, it was an easy choice to go race uh, for Kawasaki Superbikes because they had uh, you know they offered mechanics and and a salary and bonuses and and all the things that uh, you know as a flat tracker just was not available available to me at that time. So that's uh, when I made the change. You know. You know, Wayne, you, you talk, uh, there's so much stuff to talk about, you know, uh, uh, but you talk about those, you know, those early days of uh, hopping in the van and traveling cross country. And, you know, the show's called Tank Slap, and, and that's because, you know, every now and then, every one of us ends up in a tank slapper at some point or another. Things get a little sideways on us unexpectedly. And, uh, you know, here you are, some teenage kid from Southern California, you know, long, flowing blonde hair, and uh, your van. You had a Dodge van with a 440 big block, and uh, you, you mentioned the speed limit was 55 miles an hour, but uh, tell us a, bit, a little bit about, I'm sure you had some wild <laughs> stories and trips in that van, I'm sure it rarely seen 55 miles an hour on the speedometer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, it, uh, yeah, it was a 440 Dodge. I, I proceeded to rip out uh, more uh, motor mounts and uh, and um, oh, the the things you put in the drive shaft, um, U joints. I tore out a lot of a lot of U joints out of that truck. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that thing, uh, you know, it had no windows. It was uh, it was a gray or a silver van. We had a this California thing painted around the side of it, a stripe. And uh, so the the girls liked that van, that's for sure. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I we chased a lot of that uh, with that van. It was pretty quick and got me out of trouble a few times as well. It was fast. It's uh, it still amazes me how many how many girls actually get in racer vans. Like it's an awful <laughs> idea, and it still works to this day. It's pretty, it's pretty astonishing, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One time I got into Bubba's van and came back, and it was pretty tore up. So uh, sometimes that happens in your buddies' vans too. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, um, you know, everybody back then had a van, and uh, you know, we you had a bunk in it, and you slept in it. And you know, back then, I remember as a novice, I, I raced in this uh, Kansas City Fair Fair uh, tour, and it was at all the county fairs, like at Stockton and Belleville and yep, Northern they still have Kansas. It. Do they really? Wow. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Still have it. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. I mean, that was the. When I was 16, I was traveling with a friend, and you could imagine what it was like with a 16-year-old kid from California without his parents uh, <laughs> hanging out with him. It was uh, it was fun, but we would, uh, you know, all the other racers that were all, you know, uh, uh, my age from California, like Ricky Graham and Eddie and uh, the late Mike Minig and Danny Perkins, uh, we all traveled together. We would all, you know, uh, pitch in for uh, a hotel room one night a week and we would you know everybody would shower in that once a week that's all we could afford but it was it was just you know i wouldn't trade it for anything i i love that time of my life for sure yeah and i before we talk i have a few obviously grand prix questions i want to ask you about but um before we get into that i want to talk about some of your one of your most memorable flat track races um I, I was kind of put up to this question, um, but it's the 1985 Sacramento Mile. You rode Mertz XR, 
and the, t talk about that race a little bit and uh, how that played out. It's kind of like a Parkerish question. Parkerish question, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, you know, Sac Sac Sacramento was for some reason I went really well there as a flat tracker, and, it, and uh, I was at one year. I'm not sure what year it was, uh, Corey, but um, me and Alex Jorgensen had broke the draft, and we were. It was in one of the nighttime races there, and. Um, we had gotten away and it, him and I were drafting for the lead and um, going into turn three, it started to rain and where well, I thought it started to rain. So I wiped my shield and, it, and actually Georgie had sprung an oil leak. So I had wiped my shield though. And I was completely blinded going into turn three and, oh, and um, I didn't know what, where the guardrail was. That's when they had a guardrail on the inside there and on the outside. And, and going into turn three, I was completely blinded, and I was trying to clean my shield. And, and then, then the pack started passing me on both sides, and I kept thinking I was going to ride right through the center guardrail. And by the time I kind of got to where I could see out my face shield, I was actually coming out of turn four. I went all the way through the corner, not being able to see anything. And uh, so I didn't, I didn't win that race. And then um, uh, that following year, or the it was yeah, '85. I ended up riding with Mert. Mert put a bike together, and uh, Sacramento. We had that thing pretty pretty well uh, sorted out. And uh, me and Scott Parker were racing for the win. And Scotty, that's what he did. You know, he won so many races and and flat track. When you win a race, it's normally really really close. And back then, they didn't have a start line finish camera, so we come by the start finish line at the checkered flag. Uh, when we went by the, the finish line, I thought I had done enough to win. And so I was, I was thinking, I think I won this race. But when Parker went by, he raised his hand immediately because he knew that he could sway the, the officials if he put his arm up because it was that close. And that sucker did. And uh, so this, that was a race that Parker got credit for, but I think I won it. So I can't, yeah, I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine a time where that was how a winner of a national was decided. Like that is, that's crazy to me. I don't know. It's yeah, that's, I've heard about it from multiple people. You know, I, I had them, I called some of my, to my pals. I'm like, Hey, I'm having Wayne Rainey on the show. What should we talk about? And literally the first thing they said, ask him about 1985 at Sacramento mile. So I had to bring it up. That's, that's insane. Uh you know, it was it was uh, it was an awesome day of racing, Scott. And you know, back then, you know the the guys that that were in the race were Springer and Ricky Graham and Schobert and and uh, Doug Chandler and Jimmy Felice. I mean, everybody was there in the race. And and so being able to come back from road racing and actually race uh, a flat track mile and be competitive and actually go for the win was that's what I wanted to do you know, so, uh, from being a kid. So I was satisfied even, uh, even though I didn't get the actual win. Um, it was still an incredible experience and, and I was really happy that, uh, that, that happened with Scott, you know, transitioning from, you know, we talked, you know, a little bit, Corey mentioned, you know, your early road race career, obviously you won a, a an AMA championship there. And then, uh, in the early eighties, you went to, uh, you know, the Grand Prix circuit on the 250s. But when and how did Kenny Roberts 
come into your into your life and, and, and how did all that line up and and um, how, how'd that all come about how, how can he become part yeah. of your program yeah that's a cool question um, so when I was racing Kawasaki Superbikes I believe in 82 that first year as a rookie I was having a hard time uh, getting off the rear brake being a flat track guy and racing these big thousand cc Superbikes you had to use the front brake a lot more so I was kind of struggling with that. And then, so Sparky Edmondson was my mechanic, and he was he was real good friends with uh, Kenny Roberts. So he goes, hey, I want you to talk to Kenny. Why don't you give him a call? So I called Kenny, and, of course, it's King Kenny Roberts. And I didn't know what to expect. And so I, he said, what's going on? I said, well, it looks like I'm having some problems getting off the brake. And he goes, well, where are you racing next? And I said, I'm racing loud in New Hampshire. And he goes, well, don't change anything. Just keep doing everything exactly the way you're doing it now. I went, really? And he goes, yeah. So <laughs> we went to that race, and I didn't change anything, and I ended up winning my first superbike race. And uh, so I called Kenny, and I said, hey, I, I, I won this race. And he goes, well, don't think you've learned anything. Uh, and then the next race, uh, we went to Laguna Seca, and I proceeded to crash three times. So he was right. But uh, that's how Kenny and I first started um, hanging out. I ended up uh, at one stage, at the end of that year, I ended up coming up to his house and uh, brought some motorcycles up, and me and him and, and my partner Chuck Axman now with Moto America. We all went uh, riding in Kalinga out here in California and we got uh, we ended up having a really good time and, and uh, we've been friends ever since and uh, almost like brothers now. Hey, you know, I got to mention this since you uh, since you mentioned it and brought it up about riding in Kalinga with, uh, you know, with Kenny. Uh, I, I read your book and uh, you, there, there's a funny story in there about, uh, I guess, uh, Mr. Uh, Buzzy and uh, and Kenny Roberts, uh, a photo of Kenny's uh, butt cheeks. And it ended up being that your uh, your dad thought Kenny Roberts was gay for a few years, was pretty convinced of it. <laughs> <laughs> I had me cracking up. You got to tell. I mean, it, it, for the, those of our listeners who who haven't read uh, Wayne Rainey, his own story, maybe you can uh, uh, humor us with that story, Wayne. Well, I've never read the, my book either, but uh, I do remember the story very well. And Kenny, obviously, he tells it a little bit different every time he tells it, but it's it's a pretty good story. Yeah, so we went there. We proceeded to. Uh, uh, we stopped at the store. We got like six steaks and six six potatoes, and so we were going to be there for a couple nights. And we got some Kahlua and brandy. And so the first night there, we just it was really cold, and we got super super shit faced. And um, um, I, I we ended up passing out in the back of my truck, and and uh, I ended up waking up and my my teeth were chattering it was so cold because my sleeping bag was laying outside and so i was trying to wake chucky up chucky accident but i was calling him johnny and i was going johnny johnny let me in let me in it's c -c 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 cold and so anyhow uh, the next day we were riding and when we would stop can you go where's johnny and i'm going what the hell are you talking about he goes yeah you were talking about johnny last night so the rest of the <laughs> 
of that weekend, we were, it, you know, it was just like, where's Johnny? So on the way home, um, I guess they saw, so I went back to Southern California. They went back to their place. They drove by this restaurant called Johnny's. And so uh, anyhow, we, they ended up mailing me a letter with this uh, letter that said, oh, Johnny, I had such a good time with you, and, and I miss you, and, and all this stuff. And then Kenny took a photo of his bare ass and stuck it in this envelope. And so he mailed it to me, and so <laughs> so I get this letter, and I open it up, and I read it. And this is when I, I was still young, living at home with my folks, with my brother and sister and stuff. And so, uh, anyhow, I read this letter and saw this photo, and I just, I, you know, of course, it was pretty funny for me. But I put the letter in my sister's desk, not really thinking much about it. And, I don't know, a couple weeks later, I come home one night, and I just dropped one of the girls I was dating off. And I come home, it was about 11 o'clock at night, and, and all the house, all the lights are on inside the house. And I come in, and... And there's my mom and my dad and my brother and sister on the couch. And, and I'm going, wow, did some, you know, they're looking at me and I, and I'm thinking somebody got somebody, did somebody die? And my dad, he's look, he looks up at me and gives me this dirty look. And as I look down on the table, I see this letter and this photo and my dad goes, who's Johnny? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm home. And I was, you can imagine, you know, how am I going to get out of this? So I go, I go, Dad, that that's Kenny. And he goes, Kenny's gay? <laughs> <laughs> My dad, he never, never... <laughs> He never saw the humor in that, as you could imagine. <laughs> and uh, my dad ended up, you know, he ended up working for Kenny, and and uh, and my my dad completely understands, you know, Kenny's humor, and and uh, but yeah, that story was was uh, one of the great ones for sure for me. Class, uh, that's so incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, love it. Well, we kind of want to fit in some Grand Prix questions here, just because. I'm a huge fan of that era of Grand Prix racing. And, you know, you're a, for those, well, everyone should know this, but those listening, you know, Wayne is a three-time champion, 500cc. The Marlboro theme on your bikes is like my all-time favorite schemes on those bikes, man. That that was just incredible. I, I love seeing photos of that time. And, you know, it's no surprise that Kevin Schwantz was kind of your big rival. I mean, that's kind of the obvious answer for who your biggest rival was during that time. Uh, he, he, he was, yeah. He, <laughs> yes, for sure. Well, was there any, well, let's talk about that rival rivalry a little bit. You know, how's your relationship and was there anybody else that you raced with overseas that you didn't enjoy racing with? Somebody you kind of always wanted to beat more than others? Well, on the Grand Prix circuit, yeah, so Kevin and I had this, uh, uh, we were competitors here in the States in AMA Superbike, and he was kind of the new kid, and I was, I had, at that stage, when he'd come on board, had figured out that, okay, I want to get back to Europe, so I took my racing really serious, and and he was, uh, he had an incredible amount of talent, and didn't think about it much, but when when he could race with me, he just got really inspired, and and it was all about just you know trying to beat me, and and uh, so it, we had some really really tough 
strong uh, some races, and he was friends with my teammate Fred Merkel when I raced with American Honda. So they didn't like me, and and I certainly didn't like them. And then we went over to the the Eastern Match races where the Americans teamed up and raced against the Europeans. And but Kevin and I, we had the best bikes. We just we smoked everybody, and but it basically. If you could win and at those races, if you could win that, I think it was nine races at two different tracks. If you could win all nine races, it was a hundred thousand dollars sterling gold for the winner. And so, uh, but you had to win that first race. And Kevin ended up uh, stuffing me and, and won the first race. And so I made sure that he did not win the second race. And uh, we about uh, took each other out, making sure we, either one of us wasn't going to win. But from that point on, the the candle was lit. And when we went to Europe, everybody was pretty excited about Kevin because he was he had gone over and done a couple uh, races the year before. So um, I was racing for Honda. They didn't think I really had I could do anything in Grand Prix. They said, "Why don't you just stay in the states?" Kenny offered me that ride, and uh, he had to move Randy Momoa out of the team. And a lot of people gave Kenny a lot of grief for that. So I had a pretty big chip on my shoulder, and I wanted to prove everybody wrong. And so, uh, you know, that first year I ended up, uh, well, going into the first race was at Suzuka, Japan, and Kevin ended up winning the race. And I ended up sixth, which wasn't too bad, really. I think I was one of the well, not the first Yamaha, but pretty close to it. And I beat my teammate, Kevin McGee. But Schwantz won the race, and that's all I remember about it. But then we went to the next race at Laguna Seca, and I ended up pole position. I think I ended up fourth in the race. Kevin ended up fifth. And um, I proceeded to get on the podium, I think, eight or nine times that year. And I won one race, the British Grand Prix. And... uh yeah, and then the next year I raced for the world championship against Eddie Lawson. And um, Eddie went from riding Yamaha onto Hondas, and uh, he said he was going to kick our ass in that Honda, and he basically didn't kick our ass, but he ended up winning the championship, that's for sure. And then we both ended up riding together for Kenny in 1990, and that was the year that I you know, started my three-peat thing. And... Um, but yeah, but I think Kevin, you know, up until 1990, we we pretty much treated each other like we did in the states. Didn't really uh, hang out, or you know, didn't we didn't leave each other a lot of room. We you know we you know, we raced professional, but it was it was uh, personal though still. But um, you know, after I won a couple of those world championships, um, I think we both matured and, and um, um, you know we started. You know, not it wasn't as personal, even though we were supposed both very inspired to try to beat each other. But at that point, you know, Nick Doon was there, and uh, so that you know that era that I raced with Mick and 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 Eddie and John Kosinski and Gardner and Mick. You know, it was uh, there was so many guys that were that would take all of your attention. There was really nobody that um, that raced me very, you know, very. Other than Wayne Gardner, he was the only guy I thought that was a little bit sloppy and a bit of a bulldog. But um, fortunately, I was ahead of him most of the time, so I didn't have too many run-ins with him. But, um, yeah, that was probably the only, the only two guys that I really uh, um, 
race me hard like that. For those of you know people that are probably over the age of forty, you know they they re they remember the five hundred two stroke era and uh, those motorcycles. But some of the younger you know listeners that we have that you know that are under forty uh, kind of came up uh, you know that follow that sport uh, came in into it during the MotoGP four-stroke era. And those 502 strokes that you guys rode, I mean, um, talk about wild, vicious machines. I mean, they were, they're dubbed the unrideables. Uh, could you, for some of our younger listeners, kind of describe what, how wild those 502 strokes were to ride and some of their characteristics? And, um, you know, maybe, maybe what made them so fun to ride as well? Yeah. Yeah, that might be tough, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, yeah, those 500s, they had like 180 horsepower, and, you know, they didn't run below uh, 8,000 RPM, and they didn't rev over 12,000. So you had this power band that was really worked between 9,000 and, you know, 11,000, 11,300 RPM. So that's where the the bulk of the of the power band was. And you know today's MotoGP bikes, they start they start to run under 5,000 RPM and they rev to like 16, and it's very linear. Whereas the the two-stroke was was just like an explosion. And so the problem that the Grand Prix bikes had back then is that they were developing chassis technology was very um, was changing rapidly, and certainly tire technology in Michelin. They were known with a tire that had really good traction, but it didn't have much feel. So as you were starting to accelerate out of the corner, the thing would hook up really hard. But when that power would kick in, if you were leaned over a bit, just a little bit too much, you could lose the rear so quick. And where a Dunlop is a little bit more progressive, it would kind of let you know what was going on. And, and it would, But it would spin and break loose more, and it didn't have the ultimate grip. So there was, uh, you know, back then with the, with the 500s, Yamaha, Suzuki, and, and Honda were all competing against each other. There was a big push on the development of the horsepower. And uh, many times, uh, uh, um, many guys high-sided the bikes. That's what happened mostly then, just because of the way that the, the tires and, and the way the power came on. Whereas now, most of the guys that fall down, they fall down going into the corner on the front brake because the electronics and stuff. So, yeah, it was uh, – I remember coming out of some of the corners where you would basically know where you wanted to be on the exit, and that's where you kind of aimed it, and you hoped that you could get there every time. And sometimes, um, you know, if the tire – if you got a little bit behind the bike, you could – when that thing did come on and you were leaned over, it could be – you could be flying through the air so fast, and uh, it was a wild ride. So I always felt pretty good to to be able to uh, to try to get to the you know the checkered flag before everybody else, and to you know walk away from the you know from most of the races. But um, I think everybody in that era, you know, is limping around now. Um, it was it was very it was very very difficult to ride. Um, consistently and be competitive without making a mistake when you're on the edge. So I don't know if that explains it very well, but I can tell you it was uh, certainly a wild ride. 
No, that's that's a perfect explanation. I, I've I've never heard it described like that. And for you to be as consistent as you were for so long, and um, you know, I I don't think there was hardly a, ever a time where you finished. What was it outside the top ten or outside the top five? You had a lot of consistency on those bikes, and I I think that's incredible. Um, but I wanted to transition a bit, talk about the Moto America series because. On our show, we're big fans of it. We, I watch every single race. Um, I'm a little obsessed with the bagger class right now. So, um, you know, that might be an understatement. I'm, I'm already looking up baggers to build for next year. So, um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, I, lo- I loved it. I was checking bagger class results more than I check any other class. I just <laughs> I wanted to see who was going to win the bagger class. So, um, oh, it's so, awesome. Yeah, yeah right. it, it was truly, truly cool to watch, man. I enjoyed it. But um, I want to talk about the growth um, over the years, but mainly this year. I mean, it was kind of a it was a tough year. I mean, as as the whole world knows, you know, it was a lot of struggles to this to this season. And you guys were crushing it. Record numbers, social media content, et cetera. What do you attribute to that? And were you overall um, happy with how the 2020 season went? Yeah, you know, it was an incredible year. Um, I think this year, you know, when COVID hit, nobody was sure what was going to happen. And I think um, COVID ended up opening up some opportunities for us. We were the first uh, motorcycle racing series to go back racing again in the world. Uh, We were the first one to race with no spectators. I think we were just behind NASCAR. And uh, we went to Road America and raced there with no spectators, went back a month later. And by then, people were starting to get on top of the COVID situation as far as how to treat it or what to do with the mask and social distance and all those uh, elements. And so we were able to go back racing and have spectators. But it opened up opportunities with us for for Fox TV. And um, some of the other sports weren't able to go back to play ball like, you know, the uh, basketball and baseball. and that. So that, that gave an opportunity for us, and that just exploded our numbers. And, um, you know, we were able to do create uh, – so what did we have? We had Fox, Fox 1, Fox 2 that was showing the live Superbike. We had a show inside Moto America on NBC Sports Network. Um, we had a couple of classes on Mad TV. Then we reached out to um, Eurosport, so we had coverage in Europe. Then we had Fox Asia, so we basically now had a Moto America that was basically being watched from a global audience. And uh, those numbers also, you know, added to the um, the viewership. So Chuck uh, Axel, my partner, was the guy that put a lot of that TV stuff together and did a tremendous job for us. And uh, yeah, you know, we, we were able to go race when a lot of people couldn't, and we were able to do it in a safe way. And, um, you know, I don't, I think our, I'm not sure if anybody was ever reported sick at, the, at, at one of our events. We, we never got a report like that. So it was, um, it was incredible. And they were, what most people don't know, guys, is that, um, uh, I didn't go to most of the races. The only race I went to was the very last race so because I had some issues that I, I couldn't go because of COVID. So I had to kind of hang out at home. So there was, I watched all my races as well on, on Life Plus. 
and I was like you guys, you know, I was like watching everything, and 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 I was really, really, really impressed with our with our TV and everything that we did to uh, and how the races were uh, run, and I, I think we've done a good job. So uh, yeah, and I want to thank you guys too for supporting us. We appreciate that. Well, you know, Wayne, uh, we want to thank you uh, as well for being part of, you know, what we do. And I always talk about on the show, um, you know, we always talk about the, you know, the Moto America weekend. And um, I'm a fan of, of, you know, I'm a dirt track guy at heart, of course, but I'm a fan of all racing. So, you know, through social media, I follow, you know, the American Flat Track Series. It follows World Outlaw Sprint Car stuff, Moto GP, World you know, uh, uh, Jeep, uh, Speedway GP stuff. But I have to say, Moto America's uh, Instagram is like my favorite Instagram to follow because, <laughs> you know, life happens, right? I mean, for everybody. And it's hard to follow along. I mean, there's so many things, you know, that grab people's attention nowadays that, it, you know, sometimes, you know, you get pulled in a direction and, oh, man, you miss this. But I got to say, you know, you guys do such a tremendous job with your Instagram. And I feel like that, that you know, really has to help out, you know, your, your, your viewership overall and your attendance at races. Because, um, you know, I can go back if I miss something. I can go to your Instagram and I feel like I don't miss out. Like, I, it, it's whoever does that. Deserves a raise. <laughs> they're doing. Uh, they're they're doing a really good job with that. And maybe I put you in a bad spot by saying that. But hey, man, I really mean it because I follow a lot of racing uh, through social media, and you guys are by far my favorite outlet to follow because you do such a wonderful job with it. Um, I just wanted to say that. But you know, going on with the well, thanks, uh, thanks for that. Oh, I'm I, I, really I, proud of our yeah our social media. I mean, they kill it. It's. Uh, our guys, you know, we when when we put the TV together, we always, you know, with so many different racing classes, there's a lot of there's a lot of content out there that we have, and we have to do something with it. So, it, now that we run our own TV, we can get these clips really quick and get them get them out there on social media. And uh, yeah, you know, our Instagram is it's really popular. It's really popular also with a lot of the MotoGP guys, a lot of the fans from from Moto. GP. A lot of people in the world really like what we do. So, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a fan as well. I think it's great. I never know what those guys are going to do. Well, it's it's good too. You guys have a lot of personality in your series. I mean, you have the Josh Herons, you have the oh man Brandon Posh, you have those guys that um, wear their emotions on their sleeve, and it you you really capture that with your social media. I mean, a lot of series, um, if their riders have a big personality, they they kind of want to cover that up they don't want to show that side of everybody but i think the moto america series it does a really good job at um showing the riders personalities so where the fans can relate to those riders and um yeah if you're rooting for a rider you tune in more than if you're just enjoying the sport so um so i thought that you know that's kind of something i've noticed and kind of transitioning from that uh kind of like have a couple more questions one or two more questions here and then we'll do our last segment but the um the talent pool right now in Moto America is is getting strong. You have guys going overseas that are doing surprisingly very, very well. Joe Roberts, Garrett Gerloff has been uh, crushing it. And then you have Cam Bobier going over there next year. How does that make you feel knowing those guys are honing their skills in Moto America? The series is developing some more credibility. 
And um, I guess a follow-up question to that is, what are your thoughts on Cam going over there next year, and how do you think he'll do? Yeah, we are so uh, proud of uh, what Joe's doing and, and what Garrett Gerlach did at the end of the year in World Superbike. You know, Garrett actually even got to ride Valentino's bike at the last Grand Prix this last weekend in very difficult situation. Uh, Valley had COVID, so they put uh, Garrett Gerloff on it for the Friday session, and he killed it, man. He left a huge uh, business card in that MotoGP paddock. He did a, he did an excellent job for never being on the track or that bike, riding it in, in rain conditions and then in the dry. And at one stage, he was up to fifth in the dry in the second session. It was just like, wow. So we were really proud of him uh, for the job that he did there. And then Joe, or Joe was uh, leading the race and jumped off leading the race. But, I, you know, I always think if you're going to jump off, make sure you're in first. So uh, he did a good job there, but I think uh, he just needs to do a few more laps. But as far as Cam, I think Cam is going to open some eyes. Uh, I think the thing that they most people don't realize is that uh, he's already been over there once. 10 years ago, so he, he kind of saw what he had to do to get ready. And he came back here, and he, and he won our championship, I think, uh, four or five times. And then now he's going to go over there and ride in a, in a Moto2 class. Everybody basically has the same chassis and tires. So he's just got to learn the track. And um, I think he's going to be very competitive. I think he can win races. I think he can race for a championship. Um, if maybe not. If not in the first couple races, I think uh, the sooner he can get comfortable with the team and understand uh, the tires a little bit, being Dunlop tires, I think he'll be competitive. So we're we're keeping our fingers crossed for all these guys that they all start peaking. That's that's good for Moto America. I had uh, one more one more question, and it's kind of related to flat track. Do you follow the flat track series now? And um, you know what do you, what are your thoughts on some of the riders in in the flat track side of things? Um, to be honest, I don't follow it uh, race to race. I saw a couple races here recently on TV. Um, yeah, I know JD comes from Moto America and he's a race in the Yamaha, and I know that they're struggling a little bit. I'm a fan, you know. I love the flat track thing. I want those guys to be to get everything that they can out of it. I think uh, Indians uh, done a done such a wonderful job building the bike. But it's really uh, killing, uh, you know, Harley Davidson. I think they're they're struggling a bit, just from what I can see from the results. You know, I wish uh, I wish I could go to more races. I'm obviously a part of the class of '79. You know, I help those guys with uh, raising funds and stuff for what we're you know trying to help injured flat trackers. But uh, yeah, I, I was sponsoring uh, a rider, Nick Armstrong, for a couple years, and I think he's he's not riding in the main class. I don't think now. I think they changed the rule. So yeah, that and Ronnie Jones can't ride in that class either because I think he's now too old. So, um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, but uh, no, I'm a big fan of flat track. I, I think I wish they could, you know, race more miles and things like that. But um, yeah, I love it. Yeah, Ronnie's a good friend of mine. He actually came to a, a race this year to help me uh, with he was my rider coach a little bit so yeah i love ronnie he's a good dude um but yeah our, our last segment i mean we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us the fans are really going to enjoy this interview but we do our last segment it's called the higher low line we give you a this or that type of question and pick one or the other and 
uh, if you want to give a one or one or two sentence kind of follow up um, or explanation too. But um, we kind of ask this one a lot, but it's one it's one that I like to know. Are you more of a Rossi guy? Or are you a Marquez guy? Yeah. Well, uh, these these are tough. These are tough. So I can't be both. Ah, uh, you can be both. Yeah, okay. I, I don't know if one's yeah. riding style you kind of like more, or you know, whatever things like that. You know, um, I appreciate both their talents. Uh, I think Rossi's he's kind of a Sunday guy, and, and Marquez is Sunday every day. You know, so he's um, Marquez is exciting guy to watch, and Rossi's uh, he's a guy that's he's just building up for the race. But um, I like both, you know. I mean, I appreciate everything that Rossi's done to go and race in MotoGP for over 20 years. I only did it for six years. And, uh, and I remember the, you know, the commitment I had to have for those six years was, you know, it was, it was difficult. And for him to do what he's doing at this level is just amazing. And then the same thing for, for Marquez. The, the thing I'm concerned about Marquez is that he just hits the deck a bit too much. I mean, I think he averages over 20 get-offs a year, which, um, you know, there's sometimes when I race, I, you know, three or four a year was way too much. So, fortunately, these guys all crack on, you know, most of the time on the front brake, so they lose the front going in, so it doesn't, it's not quite as tough as high sides. But uh, I like both, and uh, I like it when they can, when they can duke it out. But I think Marquez here recently has had the upper hand when he's healthy. That was great. That was a really good explanation. Um, kind of flat track related question. I think you rode both. I'm certain you rode both, but if you had to pick one flat track bike, iconic, your favorite one, are you going with the XR 750 or the RS 750? I've ridden both. Wow. Preference? Uh, trick question there. Yeah. Preference. Um, I rode Merch Harley and, and had that success with him uh, on that bike. That was the first Harley to have upside-down forks, and he had a funny-shaped uh, exhaust port on that bike, and so down the straightaway, that bike would make a strange noise. And But, man, you, you really knew that it was coming when you were when you were either in front of it or behind it. It was uh, – that thing was a missile. But I'd have to say, yeah, the Harley, because it was uh, – you know, that bike, it, I think it's – could even still be competitive today so my choice is the harley yep perfect perfect going back to uh kind of this is a non a non-racing one kind of late 80s top movies from the 80s late 80s uh are you more of a caddyshack fan or are you a a breakfast club caddyshack oh yeah caddyshack okay all right cool i like it um all right you're stuck on an island and you have one guy that you're stuck on the island with, who is it going to be, Kevin Schwantz or Kenny Roberts? <laughs> oh, shit. What? Neither, man. That, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I could probably uh, put up with Roberts a lot longer than I could that damn Texan. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Okay. I got a two, two or three more here. You have a you have to get a tattoo honoring a champ, your championship across your chest. Are you getting the Kawasaki logo or the Marlboro logo? <laughs> wow, that's a good one. So, not Kawasaki. Those suckers fired me after winning the championship. So, I'll take the smokers all day of that Marlboro. 
All right. Super hypothetical. Uh, you are in jail and you need to get bailed out. Who are you going to call? <laughs> Shell through it or Mert Lawwell? <laughs> oh, I guess Mert. I'm not sure Shell would come and get me. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, so, some of these are that, tough. That'd we be take, a we, hard call to make. That'd be a hard pride. call to make. I remember Shell though. You know, he he. When I rode for him, I used to ride out to his uh, his shop, and I would go out there and clean the bike. And he wouldn't work on the bike unless it was clean. So uh, yeah, he was a he was an old. He didn't say much. And uh, but man, he was he was a he was a legend. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, Wayne, once again, appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. A lot, a lot of good stories and a lot of insight that I'm I'm thankful that I've learned about. And we'll uh, we'll catch up with you soon. We we like we said, we love the Moto America series. I'm gonna find a bagger for next year so I can race. Uh, I want to race the bagger class. Um, <laughs> but again, That's thank awesome. you for for taking the time to come on and chat with us. Hey guys, I had fun and. Uh... You guys are welcome anytime to one of my races, and hopefully I'll come see you at uh, one of these flat track races soon. And uh, you guys stay safe, huh? All right. Thank you, you so too, much, Wayne. Wayne. Thank you. See you guys. Yep. See you. Wayne wow. Rainey, legend, legend, legend. First world champ, Sammy. That's that's pretty cool. That's Hopefully we can have more world champs on. But for yeah. that, Wayne Rainey as our first. Love it. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, MotoGP, like, you know, uh, 500 GP world champion, three-time world champion, you know, on tank slapping. Uh, I mean, all of our guests are gold, but, I mean, I think that's kind of a new milestone, obviously, for the show. And uh, always uh, an honor to talk to uh, someone of that caliber. Yeah, fuck, man. It's When I talk to somebody like that, I, it's... It, it's it's surreal to me. Um, you know, a lot of these guys I'm, I'm pals with, and I don't know if I've ever met Wayne face to face. Um, so to chat with him and for him to kind of know who I am a little bit, it's just, I don't know, it's just cool, man. It's just awesome. So yeah. Um, the Marlboro, you know, five, 500 CC bikes that he raced there. I can't wait to post pictures of them on our tank slapping page. They're just so cool, man. Um, that was a different era for sure. And those Marlboro, uh, themed bikes are just so badass yeah yeah you know um i i gotta say you know i'm sure everybody kind of knows you know wayne's story somewhat and uh you know he had a career ending injury that uh left him paralyzed from uh i guess you know the chest down but um you know i just want to kind of paraphrase something that was said uh at that time uh by uh dr costa claudio costa who is the moto gp uh doctor and has been for for a number of years uh when wayne had that career ending crash he said uh wayne has a new life now and he's going to be good at it and boy was he right wayne uh you know is a champion in everything he he does in in every sense of the word yeah and it's just cool for um like he thanked us for supporting the series and not only is the racing good but it's really cool to support one of our own you know it's flat track a lot of our listeners are flat track fans and it's it's cool that we can support one of our own wayne is a flat tracker you know he he Took some time to go road racing, but at, at his core, uh, Wayne's a flat tracker, and we love supporting that series. And hopefully, our, our fans and listeners can get behind it and, you know, subscribe to their live plus package and watch it on TV and, you know, follow them on social me- media and things like that. 
because um, it, it's just a rad series and what Wayne's been able to do and this record-breaking year they've had is just is just awesome. Um, you know, there's a lot of good personalities in the in their series, up-and-coming talent. Um, you know, it's a bummer for me that well, it's double-edged sword. I want to see how Cam can do overseas, but I do enjoy having him racing in Moto America. But somebody's going to step up and. The, the classes are going to be stacked again next year, but a lot of a lot of good stuff from Wayne. I, I know, I think he rode. He said the RS 750. I think he rode for Bubba Schobert um, for a couple mm-hmm. of years or a little bit yeah. on RS 750. There was just so yeah. much we could have talked about. You know, it's hard to cover a flat track career, a Grand Prix career, an AMA career, Moto America, and Wayne's time is, is definitely valuable, and I just I didn't want to keep him too long. I, I know he's got shit to do right? rather than talk to C-Tex and Sammy Sabenja, you know? I mean, we could probably talk to Wayne Rainey for a month straight and not even get, you know, half of what we need to talk about said. Yeah, exactly. But, nah, we appreciate all the fans and listeners for tuning in once again. Great show, and Make sure you hit us up, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify. Leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit. I don't have much else, man. I guess uh, we thank our sponsors, of course. Without them, we couldn't you know, make this show possible. Our big sponsor, Bell Power Sports, all three champions from the American Flat Track Series, wore the Bell Race Star Flex last season. Check out bellhelmets.com to view their full line of products. The quality and safety is unmatched. If you start tank slapping, you want to be protected by Bell. Shout out Jerry Stinchfield of Roof Systems from Dallas, Texas, commercial and industrial roofing company, nearly 40 years of experience, commercialroofsystems.net. That's all I got, man. I appreciate all the fans tuning in. And- yeah, until, uh, until next show, we'll, we'll see you on social media. Until then, see ya. Peace. Peace.